Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green and I'm your host. We're today talking about Pentecost. I talked about it last week because it was also the, the Jewish holiday of Shavuot was last week and Shavuot is Pentecost. It's when it was um, observed last week in the Jewish world, whereas we're observing Pentecost today in the Christian world, at least in our part of the Christian world, not everybody. Some other people did celebrate it last week, um, and I um, got the dates wrong. <laughs> so I did the Pentecost sermon last week, so t- this week I feel like I've got a freebie, and so I'm going to do what I want to do, which is to, to give you more information about Pentecost and tell you why Pentecost is important and and. And it's the fulfillment of God's promise through Jeremiah and Ezekiel that he would give us new hearts, that he would give humanity new hearts, and he would give us, um, write the laws on our hearts as opposed to just being written on, on the, engraved on the tablets and, and written in paper for those of us who live now. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about that a little bit and talk about that in the context of the, the festival of Shavuot, the festival of Pentecost. It's the festival of weeks, and so what you get is you you got seven days post, or seven weeks, sorry, after the um, celebration of the festival of unleavened bread, and that's the reason there's a discrepancy about when we're celebrating it versus when it's celebrated in the Jewish world, um, because we're counting from the festival of unleavened bread, and that's different in the Jewish calendar than sometimes it, it will be in the um, Christian calendar. So it, it, it depends on how closely we track theirs when we celebrate Pentecost with respect to Shavuot. And so what we've got is the um, the issue of what is Shavuot. What, it was initially nothing more than an agrarian festival. R- literally, that's it. It was the beginning of the harvest. And so you wave a sheaf of, uh, of grain, and that's the that's the thing. It's a, it's an exciting time because it's the beginning of the harvest festival, and so it's a celebration of God's goodness. It's a celebration of all that He has done and all that He is providing, and, and it's also then over the centuries kind of become a little bit more than that. They celebrate also. This is the day in which um, the law was given at Sinai, uh, and so it's become more a celebration of the giving of law in a lot of ways than it is anything else, uh, because it's less of an agrarian economy. Certainly, and so there's other things that have been added to it, including um, that David, uh, the great patriarch and the forerunner of Messiah, they say was born and died on Shavuot. Uh, why that's necessary, I have no earthly idea, but, it, but it's something that they have come to believe and to celebrate on that time. Is So there's this, the greatness of the nation of Israel is expressed in, that, in all those celebrations. Um, and so the, but I want to focus today largely on the giving of the law at Sinai and its connection with what we celebrate as Pentecost, which is the giving of the Holy Spirit and the pouring it out more generally on, on people than just those that are chosen for a specific job. Because if you look at the Old Testament, what you'll see is the Spirit of the Lord was upon me. And that's in a prophetic way. The Spirit of the Lord comes on Saul in a couple of instances. It comes on David in, in multiple instances. And so, so you see the Spirit of the Lord given to people over time, but not a generic sort of general outpouring of the Spirit. We've all been given the Spirit of God at, at birth, Whenever we begin our first breath, whenever we begin become a living being as a human, then we're given that certain breath of life from God, which is exactly what it says at creation, is that he breathed into the nostrils of the one that he had created. He breathed into him 
the spirit of, of God in a way that he doesn't do with any of the other animal kingdom. And it explains at some level our own consciousness and our ability to relate to God in a, in a direct kind of a fashion as those who are created in his image. And so Jesus promises then that at the Last Supper, he promises the disciples that his going away is actually a good thing for them. He says, greater things than these will you do as a result of my leaving, and, and then I'll send the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, down to, to guide you into all truth and be with you in your ministry. And he promises at the, as he begins the ascension, right before that, remember when he gives them the what we know as the Great Commission, go into all nations, um, and, and teaching, uh, well, baptizing them, making them disciples, and, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. And then he makes the promise that, lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. And so he does that through the power of the Holy Spirit, but, but he has to leave before the Holy Spirit can come and be given to man. And so he, his promise is, is that if I leave, then you're going to receive this Holy Spirit. And so at the day of resurrection, remember, he goes and meets with the ten disciples. We're absent, of course, Judas, who has killed himself, and we're also um, absent Thomas, who, who wasn't there for whatever reason that night he wasn't there. And remember, Jesus breathes on him. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he, he does that in the context of forgiving sins, you know, that, that anything you've forgiven will be forgiven. And if not, then, then those sins will be retained on the person. So he gave to them a measure of the Holy Spirit that day. And then, then he told them, wait until you've been clothed with power from on high to begin the mission that I've given you as going to the nations and then go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that, that, though, has to be accompanied by the power outpoured on the day of Pentecost to, to provide that. And so what I want to talk about is how that relates to the giving of the law at Sinai and how it's, in, in essence, the fulfillment of the promise made through the prophets that he would do this. And, and Peter quotes Joel, particularly, about the pouring of the Spirit on all flesh in these times. And so there, multiple prophets have, have said that God was going to give the Holy Spirit. It was going to be given in, in a, a, a large sense. So it, rather than this specific, you've got a task, here's, here's the Holy Spirit for you to accomplish the task that um, you've been given. The task we have all been given then is life, lived in accordance with God's Word. And, and so that's the purpose of giving us the Holy Spirit is to lead us into all truth. And that's not just in a, in a knowledge sense of truth, it's also in the sense of walking in truth um, and, and how to live our lives in a way that, that glorifies God in all that we do. And that should be the primary aim of our lives, as it was the primary aim of Jesus' life, which is to make the Father known in order that, that men might seek after him, that we might be those who also share the, the goal of glorifying the God of the universe, who is both great and good. And so that's the task given to us, and we're to go into all the world and do that, as opposed to being a nation like Israel where, where people are to come and see. So it, it's now it's go and tell. And I'm accompany you on that. And the good news is, is that that Joel says that we'd be poured out on all flesh, which means that not only would would we be able to have that special dispensation of the Spirit to speak the message and to to witness to Him, but then there would also be a, a, a reciprocal Spirit among those who receive the message that they would receive it with gladness. So, so those He's calling to Himself, He's giving of the Spirit, so that they would then respond to the message that's been given. 
And so all of this is made possible through the ascension of Jesus, right? So, so as long as he's on earth, the Spirit can't come. So then we see in Revelation 5 what happens after he ascends into the clouds. We see him at the, the, um, the throne, the heavenly throne. And, and John is in distress because the one seated on the throne has the scroll in his hand. And none is found worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth to take that scroll which means that, that none of the angels, none of the heavenly beings uh, are worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of, uh, of the one seated on the throne. And, and then, so John is bereft, and he is um, in some distress, and then suddenly the angel tells him, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he looks, and he sees not a lion, but a lamb looking like it was slain. And, and that, that's a hopeless sort of a thing until the lamb goes and takes the scroll from the hand of the one seated on the throne, which, which m- means that he is worthy. And so heaven recognizes that and begins to worship him. So all the heavenly beings begin to worship this lamb looking like it was slain, who we know to be Jesus. And, and so he is then um, given the same exact worship that's given to the Father in um, Revelation 4. So we've got this this ascribing of worship to him, which, which elevates him and shows us that he is one with the Father because he can be worshipped in the same way as the Father and no other being anywhere in all of creation is worthy to receive this scroll except the Lamb looking like it was slain because he had provided the atonement once and for all for the sins of the whole world. And, and because he had lived a perfect life and made a willing sacrifice, and his sacrifice was received by God, and the proof of that to, to the visual eyes is, is that the resurrection proves that his sacrifice was acceptable to God because he raised him from the dead. And so then the, the ascension and John's vision and the revelation show us all these things to be true, that these are the, the certification of all this. Uh, this resurrection event and the sacrifice on the cross event. And so on, on Pentecost, what you've got is, is that now we're 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus and about 10 days after the ascension of Jesus. So now we've got this, this scene where the, the disciples, and we don't know who beyond the disciples, but we know the disciples are there on the day of Pentecost. They were all together in one place, and then there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so there's this, this dramatic thing happens when they're gathered together in one place, and we don't know where that place is, um, you know, it's we can conflate stories, and, and um, but here what we've got is at least the disciples, and we're not sure who beyond that are there in that one place, and, and then suddenly the Spirit of God falls, and it's accompanied by signs, both uh, visual signs and and oral, auditory signs, uh, the the sound like a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting, and then this visual thing of the tongues of fire. And, and it's like, in that way, the giving of the law, which is accompanied by similar sorts of things, right? The cloud descends upon the mountain, and then there's rumblings and peals of thunder and lightnings on the mountain, and, and then the voice of God comes like rushing waters. And it catches the attention of the people, and it scares the people. But at the same time, they've prepared themselves for this event. They've spent three days preparing themselves for this event, and nothing is allowed to touch the mountain or to go upon it during this time. And they hear this 
thing and they hear the Lord begin to speak and they say, that's enough. We can't take any more of that. Why don't you, Moses, be our deputy? We'll deputize you to be the one that talks to God because we're afraid of him. We're afraid that we will die in the encounter with him. And so so they, they say, all right, we'll let Moses hear all that. But the, the remarkable thing about the claim of, of, the, of Judaism that, that sets it apart from every other religion on the earth, actually, is, is that, that the claim is made there that, that this is not given to one man, that all these people who are gathered there at the foot of Mount Sinai, including those who had joined them from Egypt, the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude that came out with them, having seen the plagues and the mighty acts of God, in Egypt, these are all gathered there at the foot of the mountain, and all 600,000 plus of these people hear God speak for themselves and declare the covenant that he's making with the land, and he, he, the declaration of that, the, um, the, the sort of official document is the Ten Commandments, and then everything else is just commentary in so many ways on the Ten Commandments. Um, and so they, they're given all of this is a revelation to 600,000 people at one time. Plus, we're not sure how many it is because uh, it just says 600,000 men. But these people all hear the word of God spoken. They hear God's voice and they understand what he has said. And so they're given those 10 commandments at the beginning of this. And it's the declaration of God's covenant with, with the people. I am your God. And, and then their response to that is it, which is which is very critical, right? I mean, it, it's the giving of the law, but it's the receiving of the law that's all equally important because it's in the receiving of the law and the living out of the law, the commitment to that that's going to be the the difference maker for the Israelites. And so what they say is is that that we've heard enough from God. We'll tell you what, Moses, we'll send you back up that mountain. You can meet with him, and we're cool with that. We're, we're cool. Whatever you bring back down, we're going to do those things. And that's exactly what they say. We have heard, and we will do. And so they've heard enough, and they've seen enough in Egypt to know who this God is, and that this God's on their side, and, and that he's not only great, but he's also good. And so they trust him. They've, or he's developed the trust with them in bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea, providing the manna, all those things. He has done enough for them to say, we will do and we will listen. And so they're committing to do anything Moses comes back and says God said to do. So, so they've accepted him as their God. They've accepted the terms, the basic terms of the covenant for the little, from the little they've heard and for the lot they've seen. They're accepting this on the basis of what they know about the character of God. And so they've said yes to that, and that's an important thing, and it's the thing that, that Jewish lore, the sages will say, separated them from all the other peoples on the earth, that God had offered this covenant to everybody else, and they had all rejected it. But the Israelites didn't reject it. And then they don't go on to, to say that's a point of pride for them, because the, the corollary to that is is that, that the language there says that they're under the mountain. And so what they see is God picks up the mountain, holds it over them and, and in an act of coercion at some level, and says, are you going to receive this, or am I going to drop the mountain on you? you know? And so that's the, the way that, it, that they it describe how that they're the nation with the covenant with God without becoming a people prideful about their own part in it. You know, that like they're not taking responsibility for their own salvation. It says at some level they had no choice but to do that. They did have a choice, obviously, but, but 
that's the way they kind of come at it and describe it is that the language that's used kind of gives the opening for the interpretation that God picks up the mountain and holds it over them and says, you're going to accept the covenant or not. So the, the, there isn't pride in being the chosen people of God. You know, yes, we were chosen, but, but it required a bit of coercion to get us to accept that chosen status. And so, but what they also say is, is that based on the genealogical tables in Genesis 10, that, that after the flood, so Noah comes, and now there are 70 nations that are described in Genesis 10 as coming from him, and they're described as all the peoples on the earth, and they might have been at that time. Um, we have no earthly idea about the truth of that statement, but, but what, they all, what Jewish sages also teach is, is that what happened at Sinai would be something like a UN meeting at some level, because what happens is God's voice speaks from the mountain, and all these tribes of all the earth are represented there, and, it's, and they are the people um, who, who represent all 70 nations on the earth are represented at these people. And so what they say happened was is that, that when the law is spoken, that each person there heard it in their own language. There's basically a translator for every person. So like I said, at, a, at the UN, somebody speaks the rest of, in, in whatever language they speak in, and then everybody else is wearing headphones or whatever, and then they hear what's being said translated into their own language. And so what they said was is that Hebrew is the natural language of God, and everything else is a translation from that. And so what they say was that the 70 nations of the earth that came from Noah doesn't mean that more don't come after that um, as people split from one another and become, you know, whatever. I mean, like most of the people in, in uh, Africa, for instance, will speak Swahili as a part of their language and then their local dialects that, that are basically at some level derivative of those. And so yet you can see, okay, so there's more than 70 nations, but, you know, linguistically, what are we looking at? And so, so they, they say that everybody hears on that day, they hear the law proclaimed in their own language. And they say that's so that the Gentiles can never look back and say, uh, we are unaware of these things because God spoke them in a language that was foreign to us. And, and they said, no, 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 at Sinai, all 70 heard it. So the, the progenitors of each of these, quote, nations, however you define that, um, was there. And so nobody on earth is uh, innocent because they don't know. That was the, that's the point that they're making by that. But those 70 languages are all spoken and, and, and understood at Sinai. So nobody's innocent because they couldn't understand. And, and so what do we get here then, right? So what do we get at, um, on the day of Pentecost? We get what, what they tell us is what, what Luke tells us about what happens on the day of Pentecost is as they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, listen to this, devout men from every nation under heaven. So it's the same claim that they make for Sinai, that devout men from every nation under heaven are in Jerusalem at that time. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And so there's a miracle of hearing that's happening here. There may be a, there's certainly a miracle of speaking as well, because what it says is they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We don't know what those other tongues are, but it certainly sounds like they're speaking in languages, known languages, rather than sort of the tongues that we talk about in the, in the church. I don't know. For sure, it's just an odd way of saying that. But I was telling somebody yesterday that in I was visiting in Rwanda. This is probably 2000, 2001, somewhere in that range. I was there for three months, and and 
one of the things that we did, we stumbled into a wedding service uh, that was being held just outside of Kigali. And um, the, the people were uncomfortable about us being there because we were, we were white people. And why were we here? Why did we happen to be here at this time? There was still an investigation going on about the genocide. Everybody was a little bit on edge. And so people, it was awkward to say the least. It was not my idea to go into this wedding at all, by the way. So we go in anyway, because the, there was a missionary there and she said, Oh, we should go in there. And, and then the, it, it got so awkward that they called our, the, the priest that was with us, Emmanuel, um, they, somebody came in and asked him, you know, kind of who these people are and what's going on. And then they asked Emmanuel to come up front and explain that to the congregation. So he did. And after he explained it, he said, uh, they want you, John, to come up and, and pray blessing over this marriage. And so I did. And then the missionary who was there, who sometimes I wondered if she had any cultural awareness at all, decided that she would come up and speak as well. And so she came up, and, and when she did, she, she, she had grown up as a, a, a Jewish. And it's a remarkable story. I mean, she lived the first five years of her life in Amsterdam in the basement of a house being protected from the Nazis. So extraordinary story, an extraordinary woman. Um, but when she came forward, what she said was, I'm going to bless this couple now using the tongue that our Savior spoke in, because she spoke Hebrew. And so she began to bless them in Hebrew. And as soon as she did, the, the, everybody there started speaking. They didn't do that when I had prayed, but they did it when she prayed because the way they understood her statement about speaking to them in the tongue that our Savior used led them to believe, once that was translated for them, they began to believe that what she was doing was speaking in tongues and blessing them, blessing this couple. And so when she said that, it set them free then to start praying in tongues. They weren't praying in Kenya Rwanda, and that I could tell from listening to them because it's, it's a recognizable thing if you've been there for a while. So in the same way, I don't know whether they're speaking in other tongues means that they're speaking in uh, glossolalia, which is, uh, you know, tongues that are not um, a known language. I don't have any idea what's happening here, but what I do know is that we're told that this multitude, the devout men from every nation under heaven, is here, and they all understand this in their own language. And then they're amazed and astonished and said, aren't these people all Galileans who are talking here? How is it then that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then it gives us a list of all these places, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages, in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And that's exactly what happened at Sinai. This, this outpouring of the Spirit here is, is actually an outpouring of the, on these people that they might hear God's mighty acts told in their own languages in the same way that they're receiving the law at Sinai. But now it's something that's happening in them. There's no translators there for those 70 nations. No, everybody's hearing it. So it's, it's a reception issue. They're, they're all hearing the, the, um, the mighty acts of God in their own language when they hear it. And so it, it's the fulfillment of the promise to pour out the Spirit on all flesh. It's the promise of the Spirit um, to, to be within us. I'll place my Spirit within them. And they'll all know me, says the Lord. It's the fulfillment of giving us a new heart, taking the heart of stone away and giving us a heart of flesh, the circumcision of the heart, all the things the prophets 
predicted would happen is coming true here at this moment. And, and it's going to go forward with them, with the apostles, but also with these people then as they go back and they tell the story of what happened here on Pentecost because they're all going to go back to their nations. He's not gathering them into a place the way he did with his people when he sent them forth from Sinai and ultimately they arrived in the promised land. No, this is a different kind of a thing. This is a, this is a sending. It's a go and tell. So they're, they're now going to do this and what they're going to see in the reception is, is the reception is going to be spirit-filled and spirit-led as well. And that's what happens in Acts 8 when Philip goes out to Samaria. And it's what happens in Acts 10 when Peter preaches at the house of Cornelius. What you see is the Spirit is given. And the Spirit's given to these Gentiles, to all these nations, so that they might respond to the message that Spirit filled as well. And so there's a gladness of heart that happens in that. And so they they were confused at this time. And they asked the smart question, the only question that actually matters. It says they were amazed and perplexed. And then they said to one another, what does this mean? And that's the important question. What does it mean? I can tell you about all the events, but what does it mean? What it means is is, is that, that now we're capable of relating to God on a different level. We're capable of receiving from God on a different level than humanity was able to receive at an earlier time. So we can know God in a way that was never possible prior to Pentecost. We should know God because he lives within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And and are we open to that? Are we listening to that? I've got a friend that I was talking to yesterday, and he's just having kind of an odd sort of a thing happen. He he said suddenly he just started noticing in his yard. He he said, not even looking. He said, I just, every time I I put my foot down, it seems like, huh, there's a four-leaf clover there. And so he, he... has found like 10 in the last week. And, and so you ask, what does that mean? Does it mean anything at all? And, and what we both believe is, is that what God's doing is trying to get his attention, trying to get him to pay attention all the time, not for four-leaf clovers, but that's the way God trains us. He's, he's, he'll give us something that suddenly it, is, it gets our attention. We have to ask the question, what does this mean? And frequently what those things mean that don't have spiritual meaning is, is that God is... is doing something that's causing you to ask the question, what does it mean? Because you're asking it of him, because you're not going to find the meaning anywhere else. And so, so you begin to tune your eyes, not looking for four-leaf clovers or whatever, but, but you're beginning to ask God, what does it mean? And now you're searching and you're seeking. And, and so one of the things they do on Shavuot in um, Israel, and one of the things they're not quite sure about within Judaism is why they do that, and that is that they read the book of Ruth. And so I, the, the book of Ruth, it's, well, yeah, it happens at the harvest time. Certainly that's true. And, and we're going to be looking at it in the daily um, podcast this week. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. But, but they, they want to know, what does it mean? What does the book of Ruth mean? And, and there's a lot to unpack there because you, there, you get this, gent, not only a Gentile, but a Moabite woman. And, and there's a specific prohibition in the law in Deuteronomy against marrying a Moabite. And yet, in the book of Ruth, Boaz, who is a leader of the people, um, marries this Moabite woman, and she and he become the grandfather, grandfather and grandmother of King David. And so there's something going on here that, that, that has to be unpacked and understood. And so what one of the things they say is, is that one of the things that's celebrated, one of the reasons they believe they read Ruth during this time, it's all 
I believe God directed these things, is to ask that question, what does this mean? Why do we read the book of Ruth? Because it doesn't seem to have much to do with the other main themes of the giving of the law and, the, and all that. And the, and the harvest is sort of a tangential part of it, but it's an important part of the story of Ruth. And so they, they want to know, why, why are we reading this thing? Well, I've got a theory from a Christian perspective, and that is, is that why do we do that? Well, it's to show that right from the beginning, God was bringing in uh, peoples from all over the earth, and we're, we're not to despise those people. And he was bringing in even the despised people. And if you look at the messianic line, it's, it's messy. <laughs> so, um, and it's messy from the female side, right? Because you've got people like Rahab, who was a prostitute in Jericho, is part of the Messianic line. And Tamar, who seduces her father-in-law, Judah, into having sex with her so that she can have a child. Um, and, and ultimately, Judah has to say, you're more righteous than I am in what you did. And, and so you've got the messiness of these women in the Messianic line, and, and this validates the fact that God's pouring his spirit out on all flesh. But Ruth chooses to follow her mother-in-law, Naomi, as she leaves from Moab and goes back into Bethlehem after she's learned that the drought is over and that there's no longer a shortage of food in Israel. She goes back. But this also after the death of her husband who led them out and her two sons who were married to, well, Ruth and Orpah, who Orpah is induced to go back. So what's happening is is that, that Ruth goes and said, I want your people to be my people and your God to be my God. She's rejected the God of the Moabites, who is Chemosh, who is similar to Moloch, actually. We know very little about Chemosh, but we do know that occasionally you had to sacrifice a child. It's a fertility God, and, and so if things were going rough, then, then they would sacrifice children to Chemosh. And so she's, she's rejected that in spite of the fact that all she has seen of Naomi and her family is, is that, that they left the land of Israel in time of famine and came to Moab because there was no famine in Moab. It's just on the other side of the Red Sea. It's not a long way. So they go to Moab because there's no famine there, which would tend to indicate that that God is their God's greater than the other God. And in spite of the fact that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, his name means my God my God is king. And now here they are in Moab, and then not only do they come to Moab because there's a famine in Israel, then all the men die which makes these, these women incredibly vulnerable, and yet she chooses in spite of all that and in spite of the fact that when Naomi returns, everybody in Bethlehem says, oh, hey, Naomi's back, and she's, no, 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 don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. And so in spite of all that, Ruth chooses to become an, uh, a member of the nation of Israel, and, and in spite of the fact that it makes her very vulnerable economically and otherwise to do so, she makes this choice. And so the, this choosing to be a part of the people of God, even though you can't see there's anything in it for you, that's the main thing. And, and, and the crazy thing is, is that in our day, mostly the, the way we get people to accept the gospel is to show them what's in it for them. And, and sometimes we talk about that as eternal life, and other times we talk about, oh, materially, you're going to be blessed, and health and wealth gospel and all that kind of stuff. Jesus, however, taught something very different. You're going to be persecuted. It's not going to go well. This is not an easy life they're being called to. And he called his disciples that way and then told everybody that that was the way that this was going to work. He never promised anybody riches. Never promised anybody ease of life. He said, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you because they hate me. Uh, and so when we come to him, then we need to come to him honestly. We need to be like the people of Israel who received the law 
because of what they had seen of him, and they took the yoke of the law upon themselves because they trusted God. They trusted him throughout eternity, and they trusted him to do the things that he had promised. He had not fulfilled those things, but but he would, and they knew that, and they believed that, and so they committed to him in the same way that Ruth did, and that's what makes Ruth the perfect uh, or ideal convert is because that, that she willingly took on something that she knew wasn't going to do her a bit of good. But, but the community had responsibilities, and so she might never become a wealthy woman, but the community would always provide because the law required the community to provide. And she comes upon this man, Boaz, who is a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. And so this man, he's worthy simply because he's a Sadiq. He's a righteous man. He is going to follow the law. And in fact, we know that he does because he instructs the men who are overseeing the harvest to, to, to not just follow the law with respect to poor people like Naomi and Ruth, but also to go above and beyond the call of the law. He tells them actually to leave things, pull things out of the harvest and leave them behind so that she can get them. They still have a claim to them. They haven't actually left them there until they pick them up and take them out. But he tells them, don't say anything to her if she picks those up. So she's the community itself and the generosity of the community and the way that it accepts strangers is to be the witness to this thing. And so here, what we see on the day of Pentecost is the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh, which means that we're never to judge a people as unworthy of receiving the gospel because God's poured his Spirit out on all flesh. And so we indiscriminately sow the seed of the gospel, believing that ultimately the harvest is completely up to him, not to us. We're called just to go and do, go and tell.